0: Good afternoon, so good to see many of you today. If you have a Bible, please get ready to turn to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. In her article titled, Most of Life is Waiting, on DesiringGod.com, pastor's wife and podcaster and author, Jannie Ortland writes, I wish someone had told me most of life is waiting. Learn to wait in hope and not fear. You see, I grew up believing a lie, a lie I carried with me into adulthood. I believed that happiness would be mine when my dreams finally came true. And so I worked hard, really hard, to gather around me all that my heart longed for. But then, as I found myself beginning to attain some of my desires, I started fearing that I might lose them. What a hard taskmaster fear was. It paralyzed me within a web of doubt and self-absorption and robbed me of my joy. I saw that I feared my circumstances more than I feared God. I had lost sight of the reality that both trials and triumphs are part of the good story God is writing through me. I didn't treasure the truth that He is equally with us in our laughter as well as our tears, our celebrations, as well as our sufferings. Sometimes life seems very bleak and unfairly harsh. It seems that way because it is. We find ourselves waiting for that special person, or to finally land that dream job, or for the lab test to verify our longed-for all clear. And it's hard to keep waiting in hope because what if? What can calm our fears? The remedy for fear is not withdrawal, or more self-control, or even drumming up more courage. The remedy for our fears is hope. Hope in a God who is more than a match for anything we fear this side of heaven. A God who promises His very presence to be near and real. Close quote. Well, that summarizes the main message of today's psalm. When the troubles of life surround and when fears flood our hearts and our minds, wait with hope in God. Be strong. Take courage. Amen? Amen. We're continuing our series, Summer in the Psalms, covering chapters 21 through 30 in the third year of our 15-year Intermittent Summer Series. I hope you've been tracking along with us to read the entire book of the Psalms, all 150 relatively short chapters through the summer. I've been encouraging you to read about two to three chapters every weekday, Monday through Friday. And with June and July already behind us, you should be on about Psalm 110 or Psalm 120, and you'll be able to finish on good pace. Or, with only 14 days, weekdays to go, if you have not started at all, you can still catch up by reading only 11 chapters a day for the next 14 weekdays, and you'll be able to read the entire psalm by the end of August. Today's psalm, Psalm 27, is another psalm that is indicated by the heading of David. It means it is a psalm either written by David or about David. The psalm is meant to lead God's people, you and me, in the worship of God as the Psalter was the hymn book of God's people. Uh, Psalm 27 is one of the best known and a favorite psalm of many. Uh, At least three of you have told me that uh, this is one of your favorite psalms. In regards to the setting of the psalm, we don't have any details to identify any specific occasion for the psalm, but what we do see is how David found confidence in God in the midst of fear and trouble. You see the word there, fear or afraid, repeated three times in the first three verses, don't you? And we see the reason why David is fearful in those three verses as well. Trouble has surrounded him. Evildoers are attacking him to kill him, and an army of enemies are encamped around him. And they have raised the war against him. Death was a certain and imminent threat. And fear would have been the normal response for many of us. But David says this, Yet I will be confident. And by the end of the psalm, he's calling on God's people to wait for the Lord. To be strong and to take courage and wait. Listen and understand this. Rescue and deliverance had not yet come to David by the end of the psalm. But how is David so confident? How does David have such faith? Perhaps this is one of the reasons why biblical scholars debate one of the major issues of the psalm is that it is two separate psalms awkwardly spliced together. That verses 1 through 6 is a song of praise and verses 7 through 14 is a song of lament. When you read it like that, they certainly have a legitimate argument. You see, beginning in verse 7, there is an abrupt change of language and structure and tone. The verbs change from first or third person to second person. The mood changes from confidence to earnest entreaty. Yet, when you understand David's theology of waiting, and you see the chiastic structure of the psalm, how the emphasis of the psalm is to praise God for future deliverance in verse 6. Look at verse 6. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. You get the thrust and the lesson of the psalm. And we see a model to follow how believers of God wait with hope in times of trouble. Amen? So from Psalm 27, I want to share with you four ways Christians can wait with hope in the face of fear. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, confidence in God's character from verses one through three. Point number two, refuge in God's house from verses four through six. Point number three, hope in God's deliverance from verses seven through 12. And point number four, faith in God's timing, verses 13 through 14. Confidence in God's character. Refuge in God's house, hope in God's deliverance, faith in God's timing. This word is for you, brothers and sisters. I pray this message will encourage you in your waiting, that even in times of trouble you can wait with hope because our God is with you and for you. I pray you will learn the lessons David teaches us in how to find courage and strength even in days of deep distress. Guests and visitors, welcome. We're so glad that you've joined us today. If you are here and you do not consider yourself a Christian, we especially welcome you. We believe that there's no better place for you to be on a Sunday than under God's Word with God's people, so we pray that you will be encouraged in what you see, and what you hear, and what you experience with us today. We've been praying for you, that God would lead you here today, so we believe that you are not here by coincidence at all. We believe that God led you here. Scripture says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. And so we pray that you will hear Christ's invitation, the good news of Jesus Christ, to repent and trust in him who died for your sins and rose again, in order that you can be saved from God's judgment and so that you could have new and eternal life in Christ. So without further ado, let's turn now to his word, which can be found on page 460 of the blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open and follow along for the entire duration as I read and preach so that you know that this is God's word for you. To grow you and encourage you today. Psalm 27 says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. How can Christians wait well in times of trouble? Point number one, because our confidence is in God's character, from verses 1 through 3. Brothers and sisters, when troubles and fears surround us, we can be confident, not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, but in who God is. Amen? And that's exactly the emphasis in these verses. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. The first observation we can make is the reality of the psalmist predicament. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about the psalmist's circumstances. David's declaration of praise comes not in days of peace, but in desperate distress. Notice the phrase, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, in verse 2. The language, of course, is not literal. It doesn't mean that David's enemies are cannibalistic. The language is hyperbolic. David is figuratively comparing his enemies to ravenous predators who devour their prey. The language means to depict how voracious David's enemies are for his blood. And they desire to destroy David. They want to kill David. David is surrounded by them. An army of adversaries encamps around David night and day. They won't leave. David has nowhere to flee. Yet, yet, David has no fear. David is not afraid. How? David declares, the Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear the Lord is the stronghold of my life of whom shall I be afraid. David dispels the dark reality of his dire situation by a threefold description of who God is my light, my salvation, my stronghold. The psalmist means to communicate a complete confidence in God by these descriptions. First the Lord is light as light gives sight in the dark. As light brings clarity to confusion. As light diffuses the darkness of evil. As light produces life in death. It reminds us of the words of Micah, chapter 7, verse 8 and 9. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. David declared his future and certain vindication because the Lord was his light and will bring him out into the light. Hence, David proclaims the Lord is his salvation. You see, when you are drowning in an ocean amidst a raging storm, and your only salvation is a tiny life raft, you got problems, don't you? But when the U.S. Navy SEALs come in their gigantic battleships to rescue you, you have confidence, don't you? Notice David says the Lord is his salvation, not will be his salvation. It is the character of who God is that confirms the certainty of His outcome. Salvation is not merely our reward. Salvation is His name. Hallelujah. Psalm 38, 22 says, Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Psalm 68, 19 says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. And repeatedly throughout the scripture, it records he is the God of our salvation. He alone fitly claims the name, the God of salvation, doesn't he? Not only that, David knows God as the stronghold of his life. Okay, get it. Enemies have surrounded him. Okay, his foes are breathing murderous threats. But David is inside an impenetrable fortress. Hallelujah. There is no way the enemies can come inside, and in the Lord there is limitless supply, you see. Therefore, that's why David says, whom shall I fear? What's the answer? No one. Of whom shall I be afraid? What's the answer? No No one. Thank you. David knew God has a winning track record. All wins, zero losses. Hence David knows, when evildoers assail me to eat on my flesh, my adversaries, and my foes, it is they, not me, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though a war rises against me, yet I will be confident. And don't overlook that detail of the little but significant word, my, repeated three times. This has been David's personal experience in the past and it is his present testimony. The Lord is my light and my salvation and the stronghold of my life. David knows God in these ways personally and intimately and not merely theoretically or distantly. The participial form of that phrase, I am confident, emphasizes the immediate and continuing trust the psalmist is placing on Yahweh. It is a confidence Wrought from past experiences, proven through present circumstances, more importantly, grounded firmly, grounded firmly on who God is, on his character. Brothers and sisters, I wonder when fears and troubles surround, like the psalmist, if you also have confidence in who God is, in who God has proven himself to be for generations and generations The scripture is a history of his faithfulness. The scriptures recount a record of his promises. The question for you is, do you, like the psalmist, testify of truth, of who God is in times of trouble? Do you, like the psalmist, have confident trust in God's character, even when fears flood your hearts and minds? The lesson of the psalm is, of course, you can and you should. You can and you should. Otherwise, what are your alternatives then? What are your alternative options? Who or what can give you such security and surety? Who or what can compare when your back is up against the wall and those walls are pressing in because of your own frailty or your own failures or because life's circumstances are not just working in your favor or worse yet, because of your flesh and the world and the enemy, Satan, are working against you, opposing your spirit. As according to Galatians 5.17 says... Who or what can you rely on? Who or what can give you clarity, rescue, and safety? Who or what can give you confidence in troubled days? I pray that you are able to say, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? As theologian John Stott says, The Lord is my light to guide me. The Lord is my salvation to deliver me and the stronghold of my life in whom I take refuge. Is this your confidence? Is this your confidence? I pray the Lord will give you that confidence that in whatever circumstances that come your way, He is greater than all your trials. He is more powerful. He is more certain. He will outlast them all. But we'll see more clearly why David wasn't just dreaming or wishful thinking, relying and trusting on God. There's more tangible evidence why the psalmist and us, why we can wait well in God. So point number two, because we can find refuge in God's house. We can find refuge in God's house from verses 4 through 6. Listen, because God is light and salvation and stronghold, because that is who God is, And as Proverbs 18.10 confirms, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. David has one overwhelming desire, doesn't he? Look at verse 4 and 5. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. The phrase in verse 4, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, is reminiscent of Psalm 23, isn't it? Which ends with David dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. However, the difference is, Psalm 23 has to do with heaven. The word forever tells us so. But here in Psalm 27, David seems to reference the earthly Tabernacle, As Dr. James M. Boyce says, David seems to be ransacking the Hebrew language for nouns to describe it. The house of the Lord in verse 4, his temple in verse 4 again, his shelter in verse 5, his tent repeated twice in verse 5 and 6. With such obvious emphasis through repetition, we must ask ourselves, why does David have this single and obsessive longing for God's house? particularly when we remember that the glorious temple of God has not even been built yet. The temple is built after David's life by his son Solomon many years in the future. So what is David longing for? At this point, God's house was still a tent, you see. The tent David erected for the ark, as according to 2 Samuel 6.17. The answer is that it was not the earthly temple itself that charmed David, But rather, David was longing for the beauty of the Lord that was to be found at the temple in a special way. If you remember a couple weeks ago, whenever we covered Psalm 26, Psalm 26 verse 8 in particular, when David declared, Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. David's longing for the house of God had to do with being with God's people who would be found there. Well here in Psalm 27, it's a bit different. Here, David's reason is solely that he might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It is the Lord himself that he is seeking and yet, he seeks it in the temple, in the house of the Lord, in his dwelling place, in his tent. Now, follow me. There's a lot of biblical scholars who argue here that the psalmist's desire for God's house was not literal, but rather a matter of spiritual fellowship. But that is a misleading distinction. This is because, for the ancient Jews, The tangible and the intangible were not separated, but it was joined. They actually seemed to experience God in the physical temple. Their appetite for God was something to be satisfied almost physically. Boyce again gives helpful biblical references. So in Psalm 42, their longing to go up to Jerusalem and appear before the presence of God is like a physical thirst. In Psalm 50 verse 2, from Jerusalem, it says, his presence shines forth forth in perfect beauty. In Psalm 63, verse 2, looking upon him in the sanctuary is beholding his power and glory. In Psalm 65, verse 4, the one who is blessed is one whom God chooses to bring near, to dwell in his courts. And they are satisfied with the goodness of his house, the holiness of his temple. In Psalm 84, verse 3, only had his altars, the people of God can be at ease like a bird sitting on a nest, resting in the nest. In Psalm 84, verse 10, one day in the courts of God is better than a lifetime spent elsewhere. And as Boyce continues, there is something to be experienced of God in church that it is not so quite easy to experience anywhere else. Otherwise, why have churches if it is only instruction we need? we can get that well as by an audio tape, or by podcast, or a book. If it is only fellowship, we can find that equally well, perhaps better, in a small home gathering. So, there is something to be said for the sheer physical singing of hymns, sitting in the chairs, the actual looking to the pulpit and gazing the pulpit Bible as it is expounded, the tasting of the ordinances, the very atmosphere of the place set apart for the worship of God that is spiritually beneficial. Boyce asks, isn't that true? Haven't you found a sense of God's presence simply by being in the house of God? I do not mean to deny that God can and should be worshipped elsewhere, but I am suggesting that the actual physical worship of God in the company of other believers can almost be sacramental. It's a holy experience. For what it is worth, let me state that the Puritans were not as hesitant as we are on this point Since they easily link the Old Testament temple to specific churches. Richard Sibbs said it boldly and clearly. Particular visible churches under visible pastors now are God's tabernacle. Close quote. Brothers and sisters. This is why here at New Covenant Baptist Church. The physical in-person gathering is emphasized and valued. And covenant church membership is taught and expected for born-again Christians who seek to follow Christ's commands to make disciples, to baptize, and teach all that He commands. This is why we teach that virtual church is a poor substitute for the gathering of God's people. This is why we understand preaching through video screens is less than the biblical standard where the preacher and the hearers together under the word of God at the same time can experience God's presence in worship through singing and praying and reading and preaching and hearing and seeing through baptism and Lord's Supper, God's word, working in the hearts and minds of his people for his glory and for the building up of his saints. Amen? So brothers and sisters, thank you so much for being here today on a hot Sunday. You knew that our AC was going to be bad when it's 90s outside, but yet you are here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for committing to the ministry of presence here at New Covenant Baptist Church week after week, rain or shine or snow. Thank you for showing up early to set up and welcome fellow church members. Thank you for preparing for the children to hear God's word and to model for them what loving and following and growing in Jesus is. Thank you for greeting one another and guests and visitors with a warm welcoming smile and encouraging handshakes and high fives and pats on the back. Thank you for asking how this week went to other members and rejoicing or commiserating together after a great or a hard week. Thank you for preparing your hearts in prayer for our gathering, for reading in advance today's passage to ready your hearts for what you will hear. Thank you for praying for me, for my preparation to preach I need your prayers desperately. Thank you for those who text me and pray for me otherwise. Thank you for praying for me even now as I'm preaching that what I preach would be clear and full of the spirit and faithful in truth and piercing to hardened hearts, comforting to hurting hearts, and encouraging, convicting, helpful and hopeful to us all. Thank you for singing out loud with conviction in spirit and in truth. That encourages all of us, doesn't it? Thank you for hearing with sparkly eyes even when you are sleepy and tired from a busy week. Thank you for being attentive. Thank you for being engaged. What an encouragement that is for us all. Thank you for loving Jesus. Thank you for loving this church. What a refuge the house of God is through New Covenant Baptist Church. Amen? Amen. Listen, I don't think I can hold it back any longer. Why is the psalmist so desirous of the physical as well as the spiritual presence of God? Why is the psalmist sole desire the one thing that he will seek after? to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, to look into, to examine, to meditate in his temple to be hidden in his shelter in the day of trouble and to be concealed under the cover of his tent. David is the psalmist of Psalm 27 but he is also a prophet, you see. The psalm is David's personal experience in times of trouble yet it is so much more. David, as a prophet, is foretelling the confidence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Subtle clues had given us new covenant believers of this reality. So in verse 1, the Lord is my light. Although God is often associated with light in the Bible, this verse is the only direct application of the name light to God in the Old Testament. In Job 38, 19, God's heaven is the abode, the house of light. In Psalm 104, it says, God wraps himself in light as with a garment. Psalm 36:9 declares, in your light, we see light. But only in Psalm 27, verse 1, is the only Old Testament text in which God is actually called, named, light. Of course, we know in the New Testament, as our sister Linda read for us from John 8, Jesus himself declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In addition, verse 2 and 3 are so similar to Psalm 22, isn't it? A prophetic psalm regarding the Messiah. In Psalm 22, verses 13 and 16, They open their mouths wide at me like ravening and roaring lion. Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. Jesus is the one whom will be devoured by his enemies on the cross. And that's why the psalmist is confident, brothers and sisters. Because as a prophet, he trusted in the promise of the coming Messiah, who would be his light, his salvation, his stronghold, who would be our light and our salvation and our stronghold. And the psalmist singularly desires this one thing, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. As we know and have mentioned many times here before, John chapter 1 Verse 8 and verse 14 explains that Jesus, the true light, was coming into the world. And the one who made the world was in the world by becoming flesh and tabernacling, dwelling among us by his sinless life and by his substitute death and by his resurrection. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He, God, made Him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And because of it, brothers and sisters, those who have repented and trusted in Him have been made new in Him. As 1 Corinthians 12.27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Remember, friends, the church is not a building. We're meeting at Twinbrook Community Church. Yet we are New Covenant Baptist Church. Why? Because the church is not a building. A church is a people. Colossians 1.18 tells us, He is the head, Christ is the head, and we are His body, the church. So put that all together. What is David's one desire? It's to be one with a body of Christ's church. To be one where Christ's presence dwells. As Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Matthew 1, 23 speaks of him. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Revelation 21, 3 says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So brothers and sisters, this is what David is doing in the midst of his troubles, his sole desire is to be present in God's house when God's promised Messiah will tabernacle among God's people together forever. That is the refuge David seeks in the face of his fears. Amen? Did you notice how verse 6, which is the central verse, as I said in the chiastic structure of the psalm, highlights this future reality of David's desire? David's not merely talking about heaven, he is talking about the reality when the Messiah will come. The words of this psalm are so precise and theologically rich, isn't it? Because of the future certainty of God's plan of salvation in Christ the Messiah, David's confidence is sure. Look at verse 6. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. The certainty of this future is not yet a reality, but it affects him in the present. Nevertheless, he envisions his head being lifted up above his enemies. He envisions offering sacrifices in the congregation of the saints with shouts of joy, and he envisions singing and making melody to the Lord as we are doing today, you and me. Brothers and sisters, what a privilege and joy and refuge we know through the good news of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Guests and visitors, fearful ones and troubled ones, anxious ones, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the best news you will ever hear that the one true living God created the world and created us for us to know His magnificent glory and for us to know His amazing love. He defines what love is, you see, because as the Bible says, God is love. And His love is this, that even though God created man in His image to look to Him, to depend on Him, to reflect Him, we, rejected Him. We rebelled against Him. We distrusted Him. We wanted to be our own gods. And hence, we were separated from Him. Eternally condemned from Him, on a consequential and eventual path to death and eternal judgment. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jacob read for us, incapable of saving ourselves from the bondage of sin and death. Such was our fate, friends. We were the ones who stumbled and fell. But God had a plan from the very beginning to redeem a people for Himself. And his plan was through his promised and prophesied Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was truly God and truly man, who dwelt among us, who tabernacled among us in the flesh. Although we were the evildoers, assailing to eat up his flesh, encamped all around the Lord's anointed, shouting, crucify, crucify, he had great mercy on his elect He died as a sacrificial substitute on our behalf on the cross. And Christ died as the propitiation, the payment for the punishment of our sins, satisfying completely the wrath of God reserved for us. But the good news is Jesus did not remain dead. God raised him back to life on the third day just as it was written of him, just as Christ himself foretold that he would be. He defeated sin, Satan, and death once and for all and forevermore. It proved Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God, God in flesh, God with us, Emmanuel. And when Christ ascended back into heaven, he sat at the right hand of God to reign as the sovereign King and Lord of all today and forever, for all eternity. And he has poured out his Spirit to all who would repent and trust in him. And his Holy Spirit dwells with us, with his church today. Brothers and sisters, we confess this is a congregation of the redeemed. This is a church built upon Christ, our rock and our refuge. Hallelujah. So guests and visitors, if you are here and you know yourself to not be a Christian, or perhaps you're not sure that you are, I wonder if you know this blessed assurance. I wonder if you know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior and King of your life. Who is your only light to guide you out of darkness? Who is your only salvation from sin, death, and eternal hell? Who is your only stronghold, your comfort, your refuge, your healer, your rest? So if you're hearing these words, and you're not a Christian, and the Spirit of God is moving in your hearts, do not refuse His invitation today. Do not delay your surrender. Every single one of us who claims to be Christians have answered this call. There is nothing more important than this in your life. Your spouse, your children, your job, that sports game, that TV show is not as nearly as important as this than answering the invitation of Jesus Christ. This is the single most important thing you need to repent of your sins. That means to turn from trusting in yourself to believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you and for you to trust Him with your whole life today and forevermore. Do not leave this place without telling someone you have answered this call. The pastors will be at the back doors at the close of service or you could talk to somebody smiling next to you we are happy and eager to speak to you about how you can follow Jesus. Yet there's more encouragement in our psalm, the next two points will be much shorter. How do we wait well in times of trouble? Point number three, knowing what we know of Christ, hope in God's deliverance from verses 7 through 12. Look at verses 7 through 10 again real quick. It says this, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. As I shared, there is a drastic turn in these verses from praising God in confidence to pleading God in prayer. I think what the psalmist is doing is turning from prophesying regarding Christ To petitioning him in crisis. You see, David was really experiencing trouble and fears. And there are such rich lessons for us today as believers living on this side of the cross. Just as David hoped in God's future deliverance, we as believers today can look back to Christ first coming on the cross and also look forward to Christ returning on that final day. You see, the truth of the matter is on this side of heaven, while we are still living on earth, there will be trouble. Can I get an amen? Jesus says in John sixteen thirty three, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, what is troubling you today? Take it to the Lord in prayer as the psalmist did. Hope in God's deliverance. Plead with Him for grace and answer. Beg of Him to not withhold His presence. There are so many Christians today, aren't there, who struggle and stumble in their fears and troubles and anxieties and doubts because they don't go to the Lord in prayer, because they don't know how to receive from Him His remedy, His comfort. They don't know how to dwell in His refuge. If you are in trouble, if you are fearful, why don't you drop to your knees and to your face in communion with Him? Why don't you run to the refuge of His Word? Why don't you relish in the relief of his promises? Why, dear brothers and sisters, do you run to scrolling social media? Why do you and I dwell in drama rather than dwelling in the house of God? Why do you continue to delve into drinking and pornography or other temporary reliefs rather than fellowship with him and his people in the shelter of his dwelling place where you can be reminded and convicted, encouraged and edified? Brothers and sisters, these verses turn our attention to verse 10, doesn't it? Because it stands out so blatantly. What is this random verse about? For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. To our biblical knowledge, David's parents never forsook him. By Jesus' crucifixion, we know Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, had passed away, perhaps, and Mary was actually with him all the way to the end of his life to the, at the cross. So then what is this verse? Who is this talking about? This verse is simply getting the point across that even if our, even when our closest of kin forsake us, God will never forsake us. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is Emmanuel God. Amen? What a word of encouragement and reminder for each and every single one of you that He will not forsake you. Whatever trouble, whatever fears that you are going through, whatever sins you have committed in the past, if you come to Him, He will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. Hallelujah. Yet we so often do, don't we? We are prone to wander and stray from God and His ways, whether intentional or unintentional. Whether because of our sin-sickened hearts succumb to the temptation or in our busyness, we neglect our devotion to God. But that's why I love the plea of the psalmist in verses 11 and 12. Look at those verses. Teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. What David is saying tempted by these enemies, surrounded by my enemies. I'm going up and down. My emotions are all over the place. Lead me on a level, level path. Teach me your way. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, in every circumstance, in every season of sorrows and afflictions, our God is sovereign. He is teaching us and growing us in faith and in spiritual maturity. He is sanctifying us to be more like his son. So hope in the gospel of God's deliverance through Christ and the one who is returning for us. Amen? Finally, point number four. How can we wait well in times of trouble? Have faith in God's timing. Have faith in God's timing from verses 13 and 14. Look at those verses. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The psalmist is reminding you and encouraging you in your discouragements, in your doubting, in days of distress. What is he encouraging? Don't give up. Keep going. Press on. Stand firm. Fight the good fight of faith have faith in God's timing. He is with you. He is coming again for you. In whatever circumstance of your life that is deflating you, disappointing you, it is not the end of you. God is not through with you. You will look upon the goodness of the Lord here on earth. Brothers and sisters, listen, not just in heaven. You will look upon the goodness of the Lord here on earth. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Look to Him, and you will see what He is up to. Cleanse your heart through His Word by reminding yourself of the Gospel, and see how He is working in and through you, and through fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. He has overcome the world. Wait for the Lord. Our God is sovereign, brothers and sisters. He is coming again. Amen? Be strong. Take courage. Take it. Take it. Take courage. Wait well. Jesus says in Revelation 22, 12, Look, I am coming soon. My reward, salvation, is with me. And I will give each person according to what he has done. Brothers and sisters, we can hope, we can hope that he is coming again. Have faith in the Lord's timing until he returns and for the purposes he has for you. In your afflictions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder. Life is full of troubles. Life is full of trials. Life is full of fears and uncertainties. Yet I will be confident. Because we can hope in your character. Because we can take refuge in who you are. Father, thank you for this reminder of Psalm 27 that Christ is our ultimate hope and deliverer and refuge and light and salvation and stronghold. Father, help us to grow in our faith, in trusting in you, in your sovereignty, in your timing. For your glory, we pray. Father, we do pray for those who do not know you in our midst. Father, help them to not cling to the things of this world or to themselves. But Father, in the only Savior, the true living one who is full of grace and truth, help them to come to know you and surrender to you today. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.